I bring you greetings again in Jesus' name. And also <clears throat> bring you greetings from Milmont. Um, even though I know most of you here this morning and would have gone to church with you, it is a blessing to be here with you this morning. <clears throat> there was something that Lamar shared in Sunday school that goes along with the message that I am planning to bring to you this morning, and that was the idea of that line in the sand, and he made the statement that on the one side of that line is the world, and on the other side is Christ, or we, as we make a decision for Christ, must make that decision that we are, that line in the sand is there, okay? And it is there ever since, and we'll get into this in the message some, but that line is there where the world is here and Christ's kingdom is here. And there is a time in our lives where we are in that worldly kingdom, okay? And then when we come to Christ, we now make that decision to step across that line and be over here in God's kingdom. But also as we go through life, that line, sometimes in our personal lives, we make, we, and we probably do this here, I believe we try to move that line a little bit, okay? Because as we go through life, if we don't have that vibrant experience or that vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, we start moving that line a little bit. We try to move it. Remember, the line I don't believe has ever moved, okay? Jesus Christ, when he came and set up his kingdom, that line was established by God, and the line never moves. But we try to move it. Because we're going through life, and we see something, and we say, well, is that really the way it is? I think we could move it a little bit. Because it benefits me. It benefits myself. It benefits that selfish desire. That was just a little bit of a side note. That's not necessarily totally where the message it is in some ways, but I um, wonder sometimes this time of the year if we don't get caught up in this whole commercialization thing of Christmas sometimes, whether we like it or not. Now for myself, yes, I get caught up the same way as you do, but then for myself, I find myself on the other side where I actually try to encourage this commercialization because of the business that I'm in, okay? I put sales in place. I do things to make the consumer come in and spend money because I have product. And also this time of the year, in about two weeks, there's product that I would rather not have for a little bit of time, and then the next day I don't mind to have it again. And that's called inventory. We need to... So sometimes this time of the year I'm also trying to get rid of that inventory so that I don't have as much on hand. 
or we do there at, at the business. <clears throat> but I think we get caught up in it, and one of the ways I believe we get caught up in it is we start making life so busy, and we get, and I know every time we get to this time of the year, my wife and I, we usually think, well, maybe this Christmas it won't be as bad, and all of a sudden it comes up to the few weeks before Christmas, and it's a mad rush to get this in, to do this, and there's this thing over here that needs to be done, and then this thing over here, and finally we come up to Christmas, and we kind of forget what it's all about, okay? And we forget, I believe, sometimes that there even is a Jesus and a King Jesus who is to be our King. There is a Christmas carol, or carol, I guess I will say, yes, that is one of my favorites. And it is the, the one, O Holy Night. And I just would like to read a few of the phrases from some of the um, verses. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And then, his law, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. And the phrase that jumps out at me, well, there's a few, but the one is that long lay the world in sin and air pining. And we're going to get into that some in the message this morning. And then... He appeared, and the soul felt its worth. And then the other one is, Change shall he break, and in his name all oppression shall cease. <clears throat> and this message came about, um, I actually did preach it at home last Sunday, but this message came about with the idea of Christmas coming and having a message, someone suggested, I had a suggestion brought to me about preaching a message on maybe the Advent. And those are the Sundays or the time leading up to Christmas. And then preaching somewhat on that. So I hope whoever's preaching next Sunday that I'm not stealing some of your message. I think we can probably go um, a few different ways with a message for Christmas. But this has to do with that. And as I got to studying and I sat in my sat there studying and I started looking through some of the prophecies in Isaiah, all of a sudden, and, and there was a series of messages that I have been thinking of preaching, and they are, this all kind of came about, and I, as I continue on, I may at home there be preaching a series of messages, and this is kind of the introduction to that and yet it is not in any way like if you hear this one and don't hear the rest you're going to miss out on anything because this one is a very fundamental part of where we find ourselves in life why did then this is the 
one of the questions, I have a few questions here that I would like to ask, but the first question I would like to ask is, why did the coming of Christ's kingdom need to take place? And in my Bible, back in Isaiah chapter 2, at the top of my header is where, or at the top of my Bible is where I got the title for the message, The Coming of Christ's Kingdom. Now, what I would like to clarify there is, I believe Christ's kingdom is here right now, okay? The fruit, uh, the, there is still that um, time coming where we're going to be with him in that new heaven and that new earth. So don't confuse it that that is Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom is here today, okay? Yes, there is, we still are dealing with sin, we're still dealing with our flesh, we're still dealing with everything that goes on, and there's coming a day when the new heaven and the new earth will come, and then that will be the ultimate of Christ's kingdom. But his kingdom is here today. And that's what I would like to preach to you about this morning, is that coming of Christ's kingdom. So don't take that title and just think that, well, you must be preaching about it, something coming in the future. No, Christ's kingdom is here today. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 12 through 17, just to get, um, just to answer this question of why did Christ's kingdom need to take place? Why did this have to take place? And we're going to look at this, and then we're going to go back in time and look at some other things. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zebulun and and Naphtalim. Naphtalim, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is a phrase that I would like to look at, is that last part of verse 17. Repent. And sometimes we kind of gloss over that word repentance, but that is a very vital part of this idea of the line in the sand, or the line that... Maybe we should say it's not in the sand, because if it's in the sand, we can move it. But that line is there. It is permanent. And this idea of repentance is when we find ourselves, we're going through life, and you may have heard me say this before, but we're going through life, and all of a sudden we find that we are walking against God. We are walking against Christ, and we repent, and we turn around and we go this way. That is repentance, is to stop doing the things we were doing, to repent of them and to turn the other way and to walk with Christ. So this is what Jesus said. We can also see in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist said about the exact same thing in verse 2 when he came preaching. He said, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus is saying, repent ye or repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, I am here. I am the one who is going to be the king, even though he didn't say it in those words, but the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. In Matthew's gospel, I believe it is 
30 some times that he refers to this phrase of kingdom of heaven. It is also at times in the old in the New Testament in some of the other gospels maybe there is the idea, or there is a phrase the kingdom of God. In most instances those are interchangeable. It's talking about the same thing. So this idea of repenting and coming into the kingdom, that's the only way we're going to come into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of heaven or into the kingdom of God, leads me back again to that first question that I ask. Why did Christ's kingdom need to take place? Now let's turn back to Genesis chapter 3. And look at where did this, why did Jesus have to come? And why did this have to take place where we have these two kingdoms? And I know this is, this is maybe not totally where it started. I, I believe maybe the whole idea started when Satan said, I will be like the Most High. And we can go to Isaiah 14 for that. But those five, I believe it's five I wills that Satan, or it was actually Lucifer, the angel, when he said those things, and God said, No, I am who I am. And he cast him out of, out of heaven. Maybe that is where the two kingdoms took place. But we're going to look here at why did Jesus have to come? Why did this have to take place? And we want to read Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter here this morning. Now the serpent was, mu was more subtle than any beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to, be, to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, that, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. 
Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east end of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You know, it's a sad, a sad story. We read through the first two chapters of Genesis, and then we come to Genesis chapter 3. And here we have this serpent, Satan, coming to the woman, and he says, he asks her these questions. And she looks at the tree, she looks at the fruit, she took it, she gave to her husband, and they did eat, and immediately their eyes were opened. And they now knew that they were naked, and what else happened? They hid themselves. They were afraid. When they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden. And then God asked them these series of questions, and you would, and you would wonder why, God, did you ask them those questions? You knew. I believe God wanted them to answer those questions. And to acknowledge it by doing that, they were acknowledging that they did it. But notice, they didn't really acknowledge that they did it. God asks Eve, and he, or God asks Adam, and Adam says, well, the woman that you gave me. And then he asks Eve, and Eve says, well, the serpent. Immediately, they started casting the blame on someone else. They didn't take the responsibility upon themselves. But verse 15 is the one that I would like to look at. It's an interesting verse. It's a, a wonderful verse, actually. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And as I was studying in my studies, I came across, I believe this may have come from Adam Clark, where it almost gives us the idea, well, it does. It gives us the idea of the two kingdoms. And that's what we're trying to, what I'm, trying to establish, even though I'm more preaching upon on Christ's kingdom, and I know you know this idea of the two kingdoms, but we're preaching on Christ's kingdom here this morning. But it has that idea that I'm going to put enmity between thee. He's talking to the serpent, and he's saying between you and between the woman. Now, notice it says, and between thy seed and her seed. Okay? Not plural, but singular. Which that word seed there, and I didn't look at this, but I think it may have the same idea 
that it also has, and we're going to look at this a little bit when we go to Galatians, but that one seed, her seed, he's referring to Jesus coming and being born of a woman. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. In other words, when Jesus comes, he's going to take that power that Satan has over us. When he comes into our lives, he takes that power that Satan has over us and gives us another power. And we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us then. And we have power to live above sin. And it also seems, and this was also came out from my studying, reading Adam Clark, that, you know, man, all of a sudden, it seems like man gets aware of this idea that, oh, I'm serving Satan. And, they, and he says, I don't want to, or I'm serving the devil, and I'm serving that and I don't want to, even though we see men today in the world and they don't want to serve Christ, but I believe within them they also sometimes, some of them, don't want to even serve themselves or serve the devil or serve that kingdom, but they really don't know where to go. And I guess this goes back to the Sunday school lesson. What are we doing as God's people, as those servants of his in the kingdom of God, what are we doing? Are we giving them the answer? Are we sharing with them the answer that they can come out of that kingdom? But there is kind of this warfare where man is saying, I don't, want to serve, I don't want to serve Satan, but they really don't have, it seems like they don't have another option. And there is people, don't get me wrong, I believe there is people who actually do want to serve themselves, and they do want to live for themselves, and that's what they want to do. But it, it seemed a little bit in my studying with Adam Clark and this idea that, you know, they get, they become aware that this is actually Satan they're serving, and they don't want to, and they want to, find something else but how are we as we are servants of God how are we doing in that whole thing just as we looked in our Sunday school lesson and we also um, in this verse can get that we we see that the seed is going to be born of a woman sometime down the road So in this chapter we see that sin entered into the world and now God needed to implement his plan of sending Jesus to earth. <clears throat> Let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 11. So here we have this whole thing that sin has now entered into the world. And what I would like to look at here in Hebrews chapter 11 is verses 13 to 16 and also 39 to 40. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. And what I would like to glean from this is 
that these are people, these people, these verses, verse 13 through 16, come after Abraham. These people had a vision. I believe they had the idea of the two kingdom concept, even though Christ still wasn't here. But they knew they were looking for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They were strangers and pilgrims on earth. They were going through earth, not part of this worldly kingdom. They were part of another kingdom. They were just going through life. And I wonder sometimes this idea of strangers and pilgrims, if we actually are strangers and pilgrims, or if we are, as my grandpa said, if we're just a bunch of strange pilgrims. You know, we have it all right. We look right. We have everything put together. We're to be... As we heard in our Sunday school lesson this morning, we're the quiet of the land. So we just kind of go through and everything looks good. And everybody looks at us and says, well, those people over there, they're these, these little different people and they say they walk by the Bible. But are we actually strangers and pilgrims? Or do we have empires that we're building up and that we're keeping protected here? Our business, whatever it might be. And we're really just strange pilgrims rather than as we see here. They had a singular focus on one thing, and that was serving God. And that was looking for that city, that country, that is a heavenly country. Where are you and I at? Are we looking for that? Or are we moving that line and wanting to be in this kingdom of the world, but oh, we would like to be in Christ's kingdom, but as we heard this morning, we cannot. And in Matthew 5 or 6 there, maybe it's 6, in the Sermon on the Mount anyway, we have the idea that you cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, you cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. You can't do it. You're either going to be in one or the other. And I wonder sometimes... If we, if we become saved and we want to come into Christ's kingdom just to escape hell and to gain heaven. And I'm going to tell you this morning, if that's what it is for you this morning, I beg of you to look a little deeper. Because it's more than that. Because this Christian life, if you're only here, and don't get me wrong, Maybe you came to Christ because you were scared of hell. That's okay, okay? But don't just stay there. There's so much to this Christian life. There's so much to this kingdom that Jesus established and that is he's king of. There's so much to it that we can't, we can't just, because if we're just here to escape hell and gain heaven suppose you're a young person and you just escaped hell and now you have years ahead before you get to heaven and that's all you're here for is just well let, just keep me out of hell make sure i get to heaven what's life going to be worth like you're going to be you're going to be making a whole bunch of rules and a whole bunch of things that you have to do to make sure that you get to heaven that's going to be the tendency whereas when you come to christ and as you maybe came to Christ, 
like I said, to escape hell. But as you continue going through life, I beg of you to get a deep appreciation for our King. Because it's going to radically change your life. Now that brings me just the things that we established here and how that these these saints of old, at least before the saints of old that we saw here in, in Hebrews 11, and you know the chapter, they were looking for a kingdom. They were looking for a heavenly country. They weren't concerned about the things here. Now, the next two questions I have is, why, did God, why didn't God bring Jesus to earth right after Adam and Eve sinned? Why did he allow the Old Testament to happen? Why didn't, right after Adam and Eve sinned, he said, okay, well, they sinned. Let's just bring Christ into the picture right away. Why didn't he do that? Turn to Galatians chapter 3. And as I was studying this, I came to Galatians chapter 3, and I read this whole chapter, and I've read this chapter many times before. But something happened. And I'm not sure if I'm going to totally be able to get into words or get convey to you what took place in my heart and, in my, and when I was studying this. And we can't, for the sake of time, read this whole chapter, but I would like to read verses 19 to 29 of Galatians chapter 3. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator, now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been made by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For, if, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is, there, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So I believe here we have this answer to the question. Wherefore then serveth the law, verse 19 says, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Is the law then against the promises of God in verse 21? God forbid. In other words, the law was given to bring us to Christ. Notice verse 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. If the law would not have been given we would not have seen our need of a Savior. Okay? Now you might ask the question, so what happened from Adam to Moses? What about all those people? Those people were also sinners. 
Because if we go back to Romans chapter 5, and this is where we don't have enough time to look at all of this this morning. But if you go back to Romans chapter 5, it gives the idea that everyone was sinners from Adam to Moses. Death passed upon all men the moment Adam sinned. But here in Galatians chapter 19, we have the idea of the law being given. So you and I know this morning, the law, it says thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not steal. And we can go on and on. You know, if it, it didn't say thou shalt not steal before, but when that was said, now when man kills, they are guilty of what? The law. When they steal, they are guilty of what? The law. Because the law says thou shalt not do it. And it was that law that brings us to Christ. So God had to establish this idea of the law so that you and I see our need of a Savior and see our need of Christ. And I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's why Jesus didn't come on the scene right away because he had to show man, God had to show man that they were a sinner. He could have done it maybe some other way. I, I, I'm not saying that he couldn't have, even though Adam and Eve, they disobeyed the direct command that God gave. But God wanted mankind to see that the law needed to take place so that we can now see our need of a Savior. In verse 21, it does say, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. If there had been a law which could have given life, verily righteousness should have come by the law. In other words, if the law could have given life, or if a law could give life, then that's, what, then that's how it would be today. But you and I know that none of us can keep the law perfectly. But our king kept it perfectly. Jesus kept it perfectly, but you and I no, we can't do that. <clears throat> Turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 2 now, and we would like to spend the rest of the time looking at some prophecies of this kingdom that is that we are living in now. But what Isaiah the prophet and these men of old and the men in... in um, Hebrews 11 there, didn't see, they could see it, I believe. God opened their eyes and allowed them to see it, at least some of them. But we now are living in this kingdom. Let's read Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the, of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go, shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. I'm going to just read, you don't have to turn to it, 
I have it here in my notes, Micah chapter 4, the first five verses. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all people will walk, every one, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Some of these verses are just about word for word from Isaiah and Micah. But this is what Isaiah saw coming, and it says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, that is not talking about the end of time. That's actually talking just the time when Christ is going to come. This is what's going to happen. And I like how verse 2 here in Isaiah chapter 2, how it says, And all nations shall what? Shall flow unto it. In other words, this is Isaiah, a prophet in the Jewish nation. And he's saying all nations are going to flow unto this house of the Lord. It's going to be established in the top of the mountains, and it's going to be exalted above, above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. In other words, it is for whosoever will, this kingdom of God will come, is able to come. And many people shall go and say, and there's going to be lots of people that are going to say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. He's going to teach us our ways. And notice the peace that's going to come. And that comes to a person's life. Whether this is talking that it's actually going to happen in verse 4, or is this just a, fit or a spiritual um, thing? But he's going to judge many nations. They're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What happens when Christ comes into our lives? We don't learn war anymore. War is gone. Fighting is gone. Being at enmity with people should be gone. When Christ comes in, it's a peaceful kingdom. His kingdom is one of peace. You can turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to just read four verses from this uh, chapter. Nevertheless, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the, and the land of Naph Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death Upon them hath the light shine. Jump down to verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That first verse, we actually, when we first started here in Matthew chapter 4, 
That first verse um, is, I believe, what Jesus was referring to or what Matthew was referring to there in Matthew chapter 4. But the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. What do you think that would have been like for Isaiah when he's writing this and he's noticing that the people that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, these people of Israel, the people of the world, at the time of the writing of Isaiah, there was death upon them just the same way there is upon all of uh, you and I. But upon them and upon us hath light shined. Christ came, established his kingdom, and that light has shone upon us. And now we can be part of that kingdom. And then Isaiah, and then verse 6 there, that verse that we are so familiar with, wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and His government and His peace, there shall be no end. No end to His kingdom. This kingdom is forever. This kingdom that we can be a part of, when we come to Him and accept Christ Jesus into our lives, we can be a part of this kingdom, His peaceful kingdom. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 11 for our final passage. And I'm not going to read all of this, but the first 10 verses is what I have here in my notes. In verse 1 it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Actually, we do need to read all of this. Let's just continue reading there. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. Shall he slay the wicked, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the, young, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the suckling child shall play at the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. When I was studying, I came to chapter 11 here, and some of the commentators would think this may be referring to actually the way we refer to the last days or the end times, that this... Some of this here may be referring to that, and I'm not saying that it doesn't, but at the same time, I would also like to have you look at verses 2, 3, 4, and even, I guess, verse 5, but verses 2, 3, and 4. Notice what this man, this Jesus, the king of this kingdom, the spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and then he sh and he and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge. This is our king. 
He's not going to judge what? After the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. In other words, he is a righteous judge. He knows how to judge. This is our king, the one who is leading us now. If we are his child and we're walking with him, he is a righteous judge, a perfect judge, a perfect king. It's just amazing. And then as we look at verses 6 and 7 and 8, I don't know, that may be talking about something in the future, but I also would like to, I, I would also like to think that maybe it's talking about, you know, when a person comes to Christ, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Maybe there was a wolf out there and he was torturing the lambs, the sheep of Christ, and then he came to Christ and gave his heart to Christ and now he's with the sheep. With that the, the church of God. Maybe that's what it's talking about. I don't know. Maybe it is a literal thing that we will see someday in the new heaven and the new earth. But it's just an amazing picture of the peace that Jesus brings and can bring to his followers, to those who walk with him. And the Gentiles, in verse 10 again, the Gentiles shall seek it. And his rest, that rest, I believe this rest here could also be referring to Hebrews chapter 3 or 4. There, that rest, it's not the idea of a rest over in, in the new heaven and the new earth, but I believe it's the rest that we can have as God's children when we are part of his kingdom. So in conclusion, I have a question. Have you made him your king this morning? Are you entered into his kingdom this morning? Is he your king? Where are you at? There's a song that my wife um, made me aware of. And it, it is, I believe, a song they, that is for this time of the year. I'm not going to read the whole song, but... There is a question in this song that's repeated a few times. Is there room in your heart? And then it goes, is there room in your heart for God to write his story in your heart? And it says this, you can come as you are this morning. Then it says, but it may set you apart. And I would like to say, if you come as you are and you accept Jesus into your life, it's not just going to maybe set you apart. It's going to set you apart. And it better set you apart. When you make room in your heart and you trade your dreams for his glory. Allow him to change your dreams for his glory. Shall we have a song?